Well, good morning. He is risen. Hey, look at you. Look at you. He is risen indeed. Happy Resurrection Sunday. And uh, it is good to be with you. If this is your first time, my name is Justice Froman. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad you chose to uh, worship with us, to celebrate Easter with us here at Bayou Church. And uh, you're going to need to grab your Bibles and flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you need a Bible, we have a table in the back that has some hardback black Bibles, we'd love for you to borrow that today, or even if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can take it home with you and enjoy it. But uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, and what we, uh, the reason why people call, you know, around the church world, they call Easter like the Super Bowl of the church, right? It is the biggest day in uh, the calendar year because we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, and it deserves the attention it gets because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most imperative event in the history of the universe. It is huge. It is the foundation for the Christian faith. So much so that Paul says in our uh, chapter today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says in verse 14 that if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So he says, the resurrection is the key thing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he didn't raise from the dead, then uh, everything is meaningless. It's in vain. It's futile. It's useless. It's empty. And we're going to unpack what all that means in just a little bit, but it is essential that annually we not only remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that we seek to more fully understand its implications on our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to give you a little bit of a context to what we're going to be studying today, um, it's known as the resurrection chapter. It's a chapter all about the resurrection of the dead. And uh, give you a little background, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. Um, and the Corinthian church were coming out of a culture that was saturated by Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, comes from the Greek word which means to know. And so they worshipped um, knowledge, really. And there were a lot of errors that came along with Gnosticism. Um, one of them being that they really devalued anything a physical so they felt, they felt everything physical is evil or wicked. Everything spiritual is good. And so, uh, so they kind of doubt it didn't really matter what you did in your physical life because that's all going to pass away. And so what only matters is spiritual things. And there's, there's a lot of uh, things wrong with that. But the Corinthians were heavily influenced by this, this uh, Greek mythology. They... Um, they did not believe in bodily resurrection from the dead uh, for believers. They believed that eternally we were going to be disembodied saints, like just little spirits floating around in the air. And um, though they believed in eternal life, they did not believe that we had a resurrected body. What was kind of odd about this is that it, as we read this chapter, we're going to see that they had no problem believing that Jesus rose, but they had a really difficult issue believing that believers were then going to rise from the dead. So let's just read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at the first eight verses. And uh, we're going to kind of, uh, kind of try to overview the whole chapter. We've got to understand 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter. It's 58 verses. There's a lot in there. And every verse is just packed with meaning. And so we're not going to be able to do a deep dive. We'd be here for weeks if we did. So I'm going to try to move quickly so we can get as much out of 1 Corinthians 15 as we can. Uh, because we are a Bible church and we want to hear from the Lord through the Word of God. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, and then we will pray. Are you there? All right, here we go. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, 
as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, He also appeared to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, I thank you for your uh, kindness towards us by gathering us in your house to worship you and experience you and hear from you, God. And, and Lord, I thank you for the resurrection. God, that we don't serve a dead God like every other religion, but we serve a living God who is alive and active and speaking and, and moving and wants a real living relationship with us. And so, God, I pray that as your word is proclaimed, that our hearts would come alive to you, that our spirits would be made alive in this place, God, that we would have faith and trust in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins and walk in newness of life, God. But I just pray that you would come and move in a powerful way. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for new life. I pray that you'd speak to me, God, through me uh, in these moments. Give us understanding. Help me to have clarity of speech today, God. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O God. My rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. So my desire for our time together is the same as the Apostle Paul's desire as he starts this chapter in the first two verses. Um, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Notice he says, I would remind you. This is something they knew. This is something they were already believers. They've already received the gospel. He says, it's good for me to uh, remind you of the gospel which I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand. It's the foundation of our lives. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in Vain. And so he says, hey, I am here to preach the gospel to you. And uh, that's what we're doing today on Easter. We're reviewing the gospel message. We're being reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I love about preaching the gospel is that those who have the gospel love it. And those who don't have it need it. And so everybody benefits when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached we're going to look at two uh, main ideas today and then a bunch of sub-ideas. And, uh, and so the first idea is the evidence of the resurrection. Paul gives us evidence for the resurrection. Let's just start off in, um, in verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received... That Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now here's the thing about the resurrection is that some people uh, reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they say there is no scientific evidence for the resurrection. If Just give me some scientific evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, then I would believe. But the problem with that standard is if that was the standard by which we measured whether things happened or not, we would know nothing about anything that happened in history. Throughout history, just think about it. All that we know about history is all transmitted to us by things that people wrote down in the past. There's no scientific evidence that George Washington existed. No scientific evidence. And we believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. And uh, we have reason to believe that. We're confident in that because, because um, there were some eyewitnesses to his life and to the things he said that wrote down what he said. And then there was the things that he wrote himself. We have his own writings. But you know, we don't have any pictures of George Washington. All we have is paintings of George Washington. So we have paintings that give us the idea of somebody who we believe was looking at him and, and portrayed his likeness on a painting. So we got an idea of maybe what he looked like. And then his likeness is represented on our $1 bill, right? That's the honor we give the first president of the United States. You get the $1 bill. But um, 
But the point being is that we have no scientific, verifiable, experimental things that we can do to prove that George Washington ever existed or that he is who he said he is. But we believe it with confidence, and we should, because of the compiling of what we would call evidence, the records, the eyewitnesses, the writings, the testimonies, the compiling of the evidence gives us good confidence that he was the first president and that he did exist. In the same way, we have plenty of evidence that Jesus Christ lived and that he rose from the dead. It's been said that Jesus' resurrection is the best attested fact in ancient history. We have more evidence, far greater evidence, that Jesus existed and rose from the dead than for Plato or Homer ever existing. The evidence is insurmountable, but um, we're going to look at what he shows us in this, in this chapter. There's plenty of ways we could go. We're going to try to limit ourselves to only what Paul mentions in these verses. And the first one is this, the prophecy of Scripture, the prophecy of Scripture. Look at uh, verses 3 and 4 again with me. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, what he's referring to here is that the Bible predicts Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, over 300 prophecies speak to his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's one of the things that sets the Christian faith apart from every other world religion. Prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. The Bible contains hundreds of prophecies and hundreds of fulfillments of prophecies. Here's a, here's a couple from, what is he referring to? Because he says he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's most likely referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And so where in the Old Testament does it prophesy or speak of Jesus' resurrection? Um, probably the place he has in mind is Psalm 1610. This is uh, the psalm that Peter referenced as his first sermon after Pentecost. Psalm 1610 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now the psalmist who wrote that is a King David, and many say, well, that, look, that's not a prophecy. He's referring to himself. How can he say, if David is referring to himself, how can he say, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which just means the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption? problem with this referring to David is that he uh, died and he corrupted. He, he, he wasted away. He was buried. And so how can it be referring to him? No, he's speaking of the son of David, Jesus Christ, who is coming in the lineage of King David, who would not be abandoned to the grave but, and would not uh, see corruption but would rise on the third day. Or maybe he's referring to Hosea 6.2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Maybe he's referring to what Jesus referenced in um, the prophet Jonah. Jesus uh, instructed us how the story of the prophet Jonah was actually a type or a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection. He shows us this in Matthew 12, 38-41. Let's just look at verse 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three uh, nights in the heart of the earth. Or maybe he's referring to when Jesus himself predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection in Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them, Jesus, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So the first evidence he gives us is that the, the scripture prophesies 
of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the living word, Jesus himself, predicts his death, burial, and resurrection and then pulls it off. And so that's one reason why we should believe it. Second reason is this, the death and burial of Jesus. Look back at verse 3. He says, For what I delivered to you was of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died. That's no small detail. That Christ died, that he actually died. And the reason why he mentions this is because some believe that Jesus never died. That he wasn't raised from the dead. It just it appeared so because he never died. There's one theory uh, known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory uh, just, says, just proposes that Jesus didn't actually die. That he just kind of uh, fell into some deep sleep or a coma that he does, which is kind of swooned. And then, uh, and then it goes on to propose that he revived in the, in the cool atmosphere of a tomb. And there's just something about a cold coffin that brings people to life. And, and, and that he was somehow able then to get out of these tightly wrapped strips of cloth. And, and then he appeared to his disciples. And on that note, there was a, there was a letter uh, written to a local newspaper, and the person who wrote the letters uh, said this. He said, hey, Our preacher uh, said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nur nurtured him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely, bewildered. <laughs> so someone from the paper wrote back and said, uh, Dear bewildered, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for three hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what you should do to a preacher who preaches something like that. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not proposing violence at all. Like the Gospels say he died, and he died. And he was in a tomb for three days, and he rose from the grave. The third evidence is eyewitnesses. Look at verse 5. And that uh, he appeared to Cephas, which is just Aramaic for Peter, and then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen Asleep. So he, he lists these eyewitnesses, Peter and the 12 and James and then 500. I think that's the most significant thing about what he says here. 500 witnesses at one time. So there's a, a period of time after Jesus rose from the grave. He spent 40 days uh, on the earth. And in that period of time, he spoke to apparently crowds of believers upwards of 500 at one time. Now here's the thing that's amazing about that, is that we can't get three people to agree on anything. This upcoming weekend, we were looking at the weather all week, just wondering what was going to happen with Easter Bash, and we were getting flooded with all types of ideas, and I appreciate all the ideas, and we were considering them all, but whenever it came the day, and it was 9 o'clock in the morning, and it was raining outside... Everybody had a different good idea about how we should proceed with Easter Bash. And we couldn't come into an agreement. How do you get 500 people to agree on the same thing? We all saw Jesus alive. And then no one recants. We have no record of anyone who witnessed the risen Christ recanting and saying, no, it didn't happen. We made it all up. We got in a meeting and we said, let's tell this story. And we just made it up. No one ever recants. 500 people. See, he's, he's telling us that he appeared to Peter, to the 12, to James, and then he says, and last of all, to myself. This was essentially an ancient way of providing footnotes. See, Paul is saying, if you don't believe the statement that I'm making, go talk to somebody who, who, uh, who witnessed it. Because he says there in verse 7, um, I'm sorry, verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. 
though some have fallen asleep. He's saying, hey, if you don't believe me, go talk to one of the hundreds of witnesses that saw it. See, what we know is that eyewitness testimony is some of the most convincing evidence in any trial. Can you imagine if, if uh, there was a trial and they had someone was being accused of a crime and we're watching it on the, on the TV as all you were watching that recent trial that was so large uh, about this, this man who murdered his family. And we're all watching it and we're all seeing what happened. We're trying to determine whether or not this, this person is guilty. Can you imagine if for weeks, one after the other, here's another eyewitness, here's another eyewitness, here's another eyewitness. We're going to call the next eyewitness. Here's another eyewitness. Here's another one. Here's an eyewitness. Here's one. Hey, wait, what, what are we on now? Oh, we're on 236. We're almost halfway there. Here's another eyewitness. Can you imagine 500? 500 people, eyewitnesses, attesting to the same thing. If this was true for any other event, we would be totally convinced it happened. But for some reason, many are still deceived that the resurrection of Jesus was not a thing. So he gives us the eyewitnesses, and then the conversion of Saul is uh, the fourth thing, the conversion of Saul. Look at he says, and last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called the apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then... It was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You know, the, the conversion of Saul is one of the most um, significant pieces of evidence because Saul was not a believer. Saul's not someone who, who, um, who followed Jesus in his life. Actually, he was opposed to Jesus. He kind of led the first outbursting of persecution against the followers of Jesus because he was so convinced that this was leading people astray and he was so unconvinced that Jesus was who he said he was. So Paul leads, we believe, he leads actually the first uh, killing of the first martyr of the church in Stephen. And then from that point on, he made it his life's mission to stomp out the Christian movement. So much so, he went and uh, got warrants to uh, arrest and persecute and sometimes kill people who followed Jesus. And it was actually whenever he was on his way to another city to go arrest more Christians that God knocked him off his high horse. Literally. And the risen Christ appeared to Saul. And in that moment, he was transformed. He went from a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What causes someone like that to be so radically transformed in a moment? What causes that? Maybe him actually seeing the risen Christ. And it changed his whole life. And that's what he's saying. He says, look, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. He's like, what I did, I'm sure he felt so much shame about what he did to the church. I'm least of the apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that true for all of us? By the grace of God. It's not that we are good. It's that God appeared to us. Not physically. He appeared to us through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he saves us and transforms us by his grace. 
The final evidence I'm going to propose to you in this section is, um, is the martyrs. Is the martyrs. Let's uh, go down to verse 18. He says, then those who are, have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Let's go back to verse 17, I'm sorry. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul doesn't want to dignify death by even mentioning it, so he just refers to it what the reality is for the Christian, that it's like falling asleep because you're going to come back awake. But he mentions the, the Christians. He's like, if Christ did not rise from the, the dead, then, then all the saints who have died for the gospel died in vain. And he said, if, if, if this life is all we have, and people risked their life and gave their life for the gospel of Jesus, we are most to be pitied because it was a waste. So he says, hey, you, you want to uh, believe that resurrection is real? People died because they believed that Jesus rose from the grave. As I mentioned, just early in the history of the church, there was one guy who stood up boldly and proclaimed the gospel confidently. And the hearers hated it. And they stoned him to death. Stephen being the first martyr of the church. And that was the beginning of what would continue of these people who witnessed the resurrection beginning to risk and give their life for what they saw, what they believed. Many of the 12 apostles, church history tells us, gave their life um, for what they believed. All but one of the 12 apostles um, died for the gospel. Church history helps us understand some of the ways they went. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. He, they were going to crucify him, and he says, I don't, I, don't, I'm not, I don't deserve to die the same way my Savior did. I'm not worthy of that honor, so would you turn the cross upside down? And he was crucified upside down. Paul, we know from 2 Corinthians that he was beheaded in Rome. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Thomas was pierced through with spears of four soldiers. Philip um, was arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew was stabbed to death. Bartholomew, there's this uh, amazing statue of Bartholomew that portrays uh, St. Uh, Bartholomew um, as it's a statue of, of him without skin, and his skin is, is, is draped over one of his arms. And uh, the, the reason for that portrayal of Bartholomew is because he was filleted alive. He was skinned alive. He gave his life through being skinned alive with knives. James stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, he uh, was death by burning. John was the only one who escaped alive in, in a sense, but he was, um, he was exiled to an island to spend the rest of his days. They, they tried to boil him alive, that's what the, the story goes, but, but somehow he survived that, so he was cast in boiling oil and then exiled um, where he wrote the great book of Revelation. The point being is that many people gave their lives for what they believed to be true. And, and skeptics might say, yes, um, that's nothing new. Many other religious people of different religions died for what they believed in. So what makes Christianity so special? Well, the difference is... Um, Many people die for what they believe in, but you don't die for what you, what you made up. You've got to understand, these people died because they believed that Jesus, they saw Jesus rise from the dead. You might 
lie and make up a story that helps you, but you don't lie and make up a story that gets you executed. And then as you're facing execution, maybe that would be the point where you say, all right, I made it up. I was just joking. We conspired against, you know, we, we did this. Who does that? You don't die for a lie. They died, they were motivated because they saw the resurrected Jesus. And if they were lying, I personally don't think they would have given their life for that. You have to admit there's something special about Jesus, y'all. You have to admit there's something special about Jesus. Jesus is the most famous and well-known person who has ever lived. We mark time by his birth. There's more books written about him, more songs sung to him, more paintings painted of him, more followers follow him than any other person in the history of the world. Something special about Jesus. There's more historical evidence that Jesus lived and died and raised from the dead than any other ancient history event. Because he did. Because he did. All right, so he gives those evidences, and then he moves on to begin to give us the effects of the resurrection. So he's like, okay, Christ rose. Here's the evidence for it. But then how does that, what are the implications of that on our lives? What are the effects of the resurrection? And he starts off with this. Our freedom from sin. Our freedom from sin. Look at verse 17. He says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That you are still in your sins. Um, Now, by implication, if Christ is raised from the dead, then we are no longer in our sin. We are freed from our sin. See, one of the things that the resurrection did for us is that it freed us from sin. And there's really four, three ways that we are freed from our sin, or three ways to think about it. And this is not original with me. This is a, a pretty classic teaching. But uh, the first way is we are freed from the penalty of sin. See, the penalty of sin is paid. This speaks to our justification, how we are made right with God. So we've got to understand that there is a penalty for our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the wage of sin is death. Isn't that how how it started in the garden? God made Adam and Eve. He gave them everything to enjoy. He gave them one rule. Don't eat of the one tree. Everything else is yours. Don't eat of the one tree. He says, for when you do, you will surely die. That the wage of sin, disobedience, rebellion against God is death. But Jesus paid that price on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So we received a death sentence because of our sin. Our sin deserves death. We have this death sentence. Christ took that sentence on himself, paying the price for our sin, and then giving us his life and his righteousness. Maybe you can imagine for a second what it would be like if you had a debt that was um, insurmountable. It was, it was in, like something you think you could never get out from under. Maybe you had a debt of uh, $1 million dollars. If that's a big enough number for you, um, maybe 100000 I don't know what, what would be something that, that you feel like, I'm going to be paying this off the rest of my life, and then my children and my grandchildren are going to be paying this off. Some of you don't have to imagine this. Many, for many people, this is a reality, and that's why I use this, because I think most people in the United States understand what it's like to have a large debt. So the debt was so large, it was crushing you. You have no hope for a life out from under this debt. 
You're not able to advance financially. You're not able to build wealth. You're not able to re, uh, invest in retirement. You're not able to send your kids to college. You're not able to go on vacations. Like You are so strapped by a debt that it's taking up everything and it is crushing you. And then imagine one day you get your monthly notice in the mail. You open it up and it says a paid in full balance zero. I want you to really to bring this down, bring it down. Think you think if you have debt, think of your largest debt. And imagine getting a letter saying, paid in full. You owe us nothing. Can you imagine the relief? I can breathe. What am I gonna do? How's this gonna change my life? I don't even know what life looks like outside, out from under this. This is incredible. The relief, the freedom that you might experience if this was you. Now, multiply that times like a million and we're beginning to scratch the surface of what Christ did for us on the cross. Of the debt that he paid for us. And then he looks at us and he marks our life with paid in full. Justified. Freed. Forgiven. Romans 4.25 says... Who delivered us up for who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, that he died for our sins and was raised for our justification. St. Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That he took on our sin, he paid the debt we owed, so that we can have new life and righteousness in Christ. That's incredible. So he pays the penalty for our sin. And whenever you believe on Jesus, you, you, you experience justification. If you're a believer today, justification is something that happened in your past. But then secondly, the power of sin is broken. This would be the idea of sanctification. The power of sin is broken. Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 32. He says, I, I, uh, what, I, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he says a couple of things here. He says, hey, do not go on sinning. That uh, the resurrection then frees us from the bondage of sin. But then he says, this whole idea of if there's no resurrection, let's, just, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They're using their lack of belief in a resurrection as a license to sin. Um, Let's eat or drink for tomorrow we die. This is a quote from Isaiah twenty two thirteen, and um, and there. So we got to understand that the Corinthians, since they believed they were they're being overtaken by this Gnosticism heresy, they believed that because the physical didn't mean anything, it was only the spiritual that really mattered. It didn't matter what you did in your physical body. So you could go and do all types of sin because it didn't matter. It was the spiritual things that mattered. And he's saying, that's ludicrous. What you do in this body matters because your body is eternal. You're going to be raised, resurrected. He says, do not use this belief as a, as a license to go and sin, just to say, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Our modern version is YOLO. You only live once. Just do whatever you want to do. No regrets. You know, live you know, wild because tomorrow we die. You don't, you're not guaranteed another day, so just live. It would partake in all the indulgences of life and sin. And what he's saying here is that the Corinthians, the lack of belief in the resurrection would cause them to find ultimate comfort in the creature comforts of life. So they would overindulge and, and fall into sin because they didn't believe that it really mattered. And he's saying that is, that is such a wicked way to think. YOLO, you only live once. That's true if you don't know Christ. But if you know Christ, you live twice. 
You live this life and you live eternal life. And so what you do in this life matters. What you do to your body matters. Now, if you don't know Christ at all, you're right. YOLO. You better live it up because this is all you get. It only gets worse from here. He says, look, you're, you're a slave to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That apart from Christ, you're enslaved to sin. And, uh, which means this, what, what a slave does is whatever their master wants them to do. So what he's saying is whenever, whenever sin calls, you answer. You, you're tempted, you fall into it. You have no ability, you have no freedom to say no to it. Because you're a slave to sin. But now we're freed from the slavery to sin. So that we no longer have to answer the call. You know, Jesus says that uh, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. For no one has been tempted beyond what he can bear. For there is always, he's always provided a way of escape, he says. That with every temptation that we experience as a Christian, there's always a way of escape because we're not bound to our sin anymore. The chains have been broken. So we can say no to it. That's a power that unbelievers do not have. Believers in Christ can say no to sin because the power of sin has been broken. And then our, our desires even begin to change. It begins to change from the inside out. Philippians 2 Verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So it's the idea of we are working out our salvation. We are, we are progressingly in this life becoming more and more like Christ and growing in our ability to say no to our flesh and no to our sin. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So it's by the grace of God. We've talked about this previously, that we are saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this beautiful thing, he says, not only are you going to do right, you're going to want to do right. He says, God works in you to will, to desire, both to will and to work, to do his good pleasure. That you begin the longer you're with Christ, as you mature in Christ, you begin to not want the things you used to want. You begin to desire righteousness. It's something that happens. It's, it's being, Romans um, 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the language there is the idea of this. Be being transformed. Be being transformed. It's not something that happens at a moment. You're justified in a moment in your past. But it's be being transformed. It's a slow progression of holiness over a lifetime. It's slow. It's painful. It's daily. It's difficult. But it is rewarding. So you've you got to wonder. You've got to say, okay, I know that God forgave me that I have eternal life, how come I still struggle in this life? Because it's a slow, painful process of just relying on God daily, following Him daily, and we begin to break the power of sin over us. And the reason why we still struggle in this world is because the presence of sin has not been removed yet. But the presence of sin is temporary. There will be a day where there, we, will not, we will not have any sin in our presence. We will not want it, desire it, have it. It's going to be a perfect world. The presence of sin is a temporary. This is glorification. If Christ is raised, he says, we too will be raised. Romans 8.30 says, Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those who He called, He also justified. Those who He justified, He also glorified. That you're justified in a moment, but glorification comes later when the presence of sin will be removed. And in the, between the two 
is sanctification, being freed from the power of sin. One author said, for the believer, our justification was, our sanctification is, and our glorification is to come. We were saved, we are, sa we are being saved, and we will be saved. So you understand, whenever you read in the Bible, saved or salvation, like he says here uh, in the beginning of chapter 15, where he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. You're like, we're being saved? Whenever you see you saved in the Bible, it's speaking of one of these things, either a justification saving, a sanctification saving, or a glorification saving. What he's referring to at the beginning of chapter 15 is the sanctification. You're being saved, conformed into his likeness. Let's move on. The presence of sin is temporary. That leads us to this uh, next point, our future resurrection. So the first effect of the gospel is our freedom from sin. And the second effect is our future resurrection. We need to move quickly here. Verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy... Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. We were about to get into holy kissing, and we don't want to do that today. So... Let's go back to chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong uh, to Christ. Then comes the end. When, believe, when uh, he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is expected to put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subject to him, then the Son himself, who also is subject to him, who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Isn't that beautiful? There's some passages that you can just like read and you're like, wow. And this is one of them. And he speaks to the fact that Christ Jesus and his resurrection was the first fruits for believers. Now the first fruits imagery is a reference to the initial offering of crops um, to the Lord in anticipation for a bountiful harvest to follow. So this is an agricultural community. You would plant crops. Whenever you got your first uh, batch of crops, you would take that and you would wave it before the Lord or you would uh, offer it to the Lord in some way. And the, the, what you were saying was, Lord, we are giving you the first fruits, anticipating what is to come. The first fruits was a sampling of the rest of the harvest. The first fruits was evidence or a guarantee that there would be a harvest to come. The first fruits was, um, was a sampling of the nature of what the rest of the harvest would be. And so he's saying Christ was the first fruits, meaning we can expect as believers that as Christ rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. As Christ rose from the dead, how did he rise from the dead? He rose from the dead bodily, the tomb was empty. It wasn't a ghost. It was a bodily, physical resurrection. And so he says we can expect two to rise like Christ rose. Because there's going to be a day where death is defeated. Where Christ puts all of that under his feet. And we are glorified. We're freed from the presence of sin. We are resurrected as Christ was resurrected. How, though, are we resurrected? How does this happen? Uh, verse 35 gives us some evidence of, of how this is to happen. I almost included this in the evidence for the resurrection. I changed it like yesterday because I bet felt it better fit here. But I'm going to show you how this is even evidence to the resurrection. In verse 35, he says, But some, someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So you might be asking that question. As I say that Christians who die in Christ will be raised to a bodily resurrection, you might say, how is that going to happen? 
People don't rise from the dead. Well, this is how Paul responds to it. He's, he's so tactful and gentle. He says, you foolish person. It was Paul. It wasn't me. Paul. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So notice he's about to give us the analogy of nature. And he's going to say, you want some more evidence that the resurrection is going to happen? Look at the world. Look at nature. He says, what comes to life unless it dies? What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a, a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly of another kind. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, another differs from the star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. And so he's saying here, look at nature. You don't believe in a resurrection. That's how we grow crops, is a resurrection. Have you ever, have you ever had the, 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 the experiment, or not, it's not really an experiment, but this project in school where you, you plant the seed in like a, a glass container so that you can see the plant like grow from the time of, of planting the seed into the plant, and you watch it, and you see the progression of a seed. You take this seed that's this dead, lifeless seed, you put it in you put it in soil, you pour some water on it, and you just watch it begin to sprout to life. And we look at that and we're like, man, that's pretty cool. But we're not like blown away by it. Of course, that's what plants do. You sow a seed and you get a plant. He's saying, that's, you're watching resurrection. The same occurs with those who are in Christ. You sow the seed of your body in the grave, and then you will come out of the grave as a glorified body. Now you have a ton of questions about, is he using the actual matter of your remains? Look, I don't know how he's going to do it. Is it going to be like the, that movie, The Mummy, where it's like, you know, all, the, all this dust comes together? I don't know. We don't have time for that. What we, what we do know is that somehow we sow the body in the grave in anticipation for the resurrection. That we're sowing a seed and in the same way that your plant is a, is a more glorious thing than the seed. So much so more our glorified body is so much greater than our physical body now, but it is a bodily resurrection. And that's why I was talking to some friends this uh, past week. That's why historically the church has always buried their dead. And even in cemeteries today, the, the standard practice for cemeteries is to face the bodies where they will rise to the east because Christ is going to return in the east. And so they put the headstone on the west side of the head. And then so you rise. And that's all of this. You didn't even know you were doing it, did you? All of this, you're burying your dead in anticipation for the resurrection. And the reason why Christians did that is because they were just in obedience. We're going to sow a seed. We're going to reap a resurrected body. I told you we can't get into everything, but what kind of body will we have? What kind of body will we have? Uh, verse 42 He says, so it is with the resurrected from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in the natural body, it is raised in the spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual uh, body. Thus, it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first um, the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, 
so also are those who are of the dust, and the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, the image of the man of dust, so also shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. And what, what he's saying here is that, what is our new body going to look like? Look to Jesus. So we all look like people the way we do because Adam, the first Adam, was, was, was created this way. And we are in the image of him. And so we have these type of bodies because what Adam was like. But Christ is the new Adam, and if we're in Christ, then we will rise to look like Christ. And he had a glorified body. It was physical, it was tangible, but it transcended, seemed matter. It was, it, was, it was wild, but it was glorified, and it was beautiful. Notice he says our current bodies are perishable. They're dishonor, they're weakness, they're natural, they're death. But our glorified bodies are imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual life. It's going to be so much better, okay? If you think you look good now, just wait till the glorified body. It's going to be beautiful. Our hope is secured. Man, I don't have time to even hit the next point. Gosh, because it's so good. Let me end with this. I, I just want to encourage you to go, go read through verses 50 through 57. It's probably the passage you thought I was going to read whenever we got to Corinthians 15, where he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But glory, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I told you we're not going to talk about that, so quit trying. Do I? Let's, um, let's end with this. The, the point being in that is that Christ defeated death. And there's going to be a day where the sting of death is over. The sting of death is sin. And, um, and the sting of death is over. And we are victorious in Christ. Oh, how we long for that day. Our hope is secure in that day. But um, let's end where Paul ends in verse 58. He says, therefore, okay, so he says, look, I've given you evidence for the resurrection. I'm giving you effects of the resurrection. Everything I've just taught you in this long teaching on the resurrected body, this is what you do with it. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I love that. He says, what do we do with this? Well, our sins are forgiven. We're freed from our sin. And our, our future is resurrection. So we can have confident hope that it gets better. <laughs> but then we have fruitful labor. He, he, it's almost like he expects the believer to then labor for the gospel. He's like, what are you doing with your life if not, if not laboring in eternal work, helping others come to this faith and transformation and new resurrected body? What are you doing? Your labor is not in vain. I love that because he says, it, you're laboring with the Lord. You're working for the Lord. You, you're sowing the seed of the gospel in the world. It's not in vain. And it's not fruitful in the sense that you have tangible evidence that you can see. He's saying your work in the Lord is fruitful by just being obedient to it. It's not in vain for you to preach the gospel even if you see no results in this life because God honors your obedience in that. And so, share it with others. Share it with others. The first thing Jesus told the first witnesses of his resurrection as they saw the risen Christ outside of the tomb in the garden, he said, go tell the others. And that's what he's charged with us. Go tell everyone. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Help them experience this resurrection life. And maybe you're here today and you've been in church for a long time and you say, I've heard a lot of sermons on Easter. I've heard several of your sermons on Easter, Pastor. This sounds like one you previously preached. If you've heard a sermon like this before, if you've heard a sermon like this before, who have you shared it with since you last heard it? 
if you've heard these truths before, who have you taught it to since you last heard it? That's our job as believers. I just want to leave with an invitation that Jesus gave in John 11 as he attended the funeral of one of his best friends and um, as he's comforting the grieving sisters of this deceased man, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say I'm going to be the resurrection and the life, which means that we experience resurrection life daily. Today, we get a taste of the resurrection life. Today, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's Jesus asking, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Let me just tell you, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Life is found in no one else but him. He did rise, and it should change our life. So believe in Jesus today. Confess Jesus today. Repent of your sin and turn to him. Be justified. Experience the new life in Christ so that you can have the hope that we enjoy, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, that we will experience eternal life. If you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Don't leave here today without getting right with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, I thank you for the time we're able to share in your word today. And, and Father, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for reminding us today of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you died and you were buried in accordance with the scriptures and you rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Father, I pray that today our faith has been strengthened and stirred and encouraged that we would greater trust you, Lord, but then, but then allow your resurrection to not just be something that we know or believe, but allow it to change our life. Father, I pray for the person who has never trusted you for salvation. I pray that today your Holy Spirit would do what you do, bringing dead souls to life and that they would trust in you. That you are the resurrection and the life. That you are the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through you. And, that, and believing on you, by your grace, they would be saved. I pray that they'd make that confession today. That you'd empower them by your spirit to live for you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.